Before I begin the message today, I want to take a little liberty here to uh, mention the services that we will have this coming week. Uh, Elvin already mentioned a little bit about it, and Dr. Nickel will tell you a little more about it at the end of the service. But this is our anniversary uh, celebration. And this year, what we wanted to do was make it a combination of celebrations, if you will. And so on footprints of our church through the years that brings us to this, the 136th anniversary of First Baptist Church. And then on Saturday afternoon, we will celebrate who we are today. And we'll have the opportunity to examine the footprint of our church these days. And so on both of those, if you're new to this church, or maybe you've been here a long time and you forgot a few of those things, then those uh, Friday night and Saturday services will be great opportunities for you to learn something about the past of our church and what brought us to this point, to find out what we do currently across the borderlands and beyond, and also have you the opportunity to understand a little more deeply some of those areas so that you might find a place to plug into the life of our church also. That's Friday evening and Saturday afternoon. And then Sunday, we'll come together and we will look into the future as best we know how and consider the footprint that our church will leave in the days and years ahead. So this is not just one of those things where we're throwing a few services that uh, give us a reason to have something else to do. We want it to be a time of remembering, a time of celebrating today, and a time of commitment going into the future. Dr. Levi Price former pastor of our church, St. Levi, as I refer to him. Uh, he was one of my professors, and I think I can call him that with great assurance and uh, love him to death, and I'm excited that he's going to be here uh, for all three of those services. I hope that you'll make it a point to be here for one or all of those services, uh, whatever fits your schedule best, okay? So with that in mind, let me ask you to take a Bible and go with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 in just a few minutes, but as we move in that direction, uh, let me tell you a story. Now, I, I don't know where this story originated. I cannot go back and verify the facts of it. That leads me to believe that it's a preacher story, and I've referenced those before here, so if you don't know, a preacher story is one that somebody made up, but it sure makes a good point, so that's where I'm going to start today. And this involves a young boy, probably seven or eight years of age, and he and his family went to the beach. Now, I've learned in a year in El Paso that we have lots of beach here, just not much ocean. And in this case, they had a little bit of both, and so this boy and his family went out to the beach, and as his parents were trying to get things set up, and if you've not been to the beach, then getting things set up means you have to get a blanket or something to put over the sand because it gets really hot. And uh, they also had an umbrella that they were trying to get put up and situated and uh, beach chairs and, you know, a cooler with cold drinks and sandwich stuff and all of that. And so while his parents were dealing with all of this, this young boy camped and just kind of stood next to where they were working and started surveying the area around him. And he looked one way, and then he looked kind of the other direction. Every once in a while, he'd look out at the water, but he was really not too concerned about the water at that point. And his eyes finally trained on this lady who was probably 20 or 30 yards away. And she was sitting in one of those beach chairs underneath an umbrella, and she was reading. 
And so he walked over to her, and he kind of stood awkwardly in front of her, looking her up and down, and uh, finally she recognized that she was being watched, and so she looked over her reading glasses and said, "Can I help you, young man? And he said, yes, ma'am. He said, um, are you a grandmother? And the lady said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. I have several grandchildren. And so, you know, she started doing what grandmothers do, telling him more than, she, than he had asked, uh, you know, names and ages and all. And uh, he said, uh, um, are you a Christian? And she smiled and she said, yes, as a matter of fact, I am, and talked about when she had accepted Christ. And he said, do you by chance teach Sunday school? She said, I do. I teach the, you know, gave the age group that she taught in her local church. And so he stood there. Now, all of those, you know, the interrogation was pretty much over and he, he got lost in thought for a few seconds. And finally she said, is there something else I can do for you? And he said, well, because you're a grandmother and because you're a Christian and because you're a Sunday school teacher, um, would you mind holding my dollar while I go swim? In... <laughs> and then he said, Mom told me my brother could hold it, but I don't trust my brother to hold my dollar while I go swim, so would you please do it? So look, let's do this. We don't do this very often in here. Just look around. Okay, look at all the people gathered here. And uh, as you survey the crowd, here's the question I want you to answer. Who gets to hold your dollar? Maybe I put that a different way. In your circle of contacts, your circle of friends, your circle of acquaintances in church, is there anybody that there's no way in the world you would allow them to hold your dollar? So welcome back to our series on guidelines. We're finishing our series today, and if you're just joining us or maybe you just need a little bit of a reminder, the series has been designed to give guidelines and to highlight those values that we have as a church that help us to be healthy. And especially in that, the guidelines that we're talking about are those things that if we will put to work, or in our case, because I think I see these at work in our church already, but if we will pay close attention to these guidelines, to these values, we will create a culture within the church that is healthy. It's healthy for the relationships inside the church, but it also provides a healthy environment for those who are, for those who are on the outside who come into our church. It's, a, it's an environment that is conducive to growth. And most churches have their own set of values, their own guidelines that they follow. Most of them are unwritten, and many of them are unconsidered on a week-to-week basis. But they are those things, those rules, if you will, in the relationships that we have, and they serve as guidelines for us as we seek to be all that God has called us to be. Here's the guideline for the day. If in doubt trust. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, and I hope that I can uh, help you understand that that's a lot easier said than done when it comes to the relationships of our lives. If in doubt, trust. This one is one that I believe is so important and so powerful in the life of a community of faith that if we get this wrong, if we don't trust well, then it will either make Well, let me rephrase that. 
when we address trust, if we address it well, it will make the connections of our church that we need. But if we get it wrong, it will break us as a church. Trust and distrust are major parts of every human relationship, and that doesn't stop when you walk into the doors of a church. So what I'd like for us to do is to consider this, but I want to start with understanding something about the connections that we have. One of the things that makes up a good church, a healthy church, is that there is good interaction, there is good connection between members, between those who are part of the life of the church, whether you've ever joined it or not. Now, in Baptist life, we have a word for this connection that I'm talking about. Uh, I, I use this connection word because the one we normally use has some baggage attached to it. The word is fellowship. The baggage that's attached to fellowship as a term in a Baptist church is that when we talk about fellowship, that means somebody's bringing food. It's a party with food. And so we say we're going to have a fellowship or we're going to enjoy some fellowship. And typically that begins to get narrowed down in our discussion to being just let's get together and let's eat. Now, I, you, just, you know me. I've been here a year. I'm not against eating. But I do, really. But I really believe, I really do believe that it's got to be more than just getting together to eat. We need to be connected at heart levels inside the church. But distrust kills connection. I'll try to establish that as we work our way through this. But as we move into this discussion today, failure to connect often results in people bouncing away as they try to make their way into the church or maybe they've made their way in and they're treated in such a way because of distrust that many times they walk away from any given church and sometimes they walk away from God because of the treatment that they've received at the hands of others. So we have to get this right. And the passage that we look at today is one of those watershed passages in Scripture. It's in the book of Acts. It's chapter 9. It's the immediate aftermath of the conversion of this guy named Saul. Now, we will later know, Paul, know, we will later know Saul as the apostle Paul. But when we come to this passage, he is just now hard on the heels of his conversion on the road to Damascus, where he has encountered the living Savior, Jesus Christ, and it has caused this, uh, this, this change in his life. It, it, it's of such magnitude that the whole landscape of his life changes. And in the passage we look at today, the landscape of the church changes as well. Is a, an incredibly important passage as we look at our guideline, if in doubt, trust. So follow along with me, Acts chapter 9. We begin reading in verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street that is called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now let me stop for a moment and let's make sure that we get this picture accurately in place. Saul has been the persecutor at this point. 
Saul has been the one on behalf of the religious leadership in Jerusalem who is now tracking down this group of people that would come to be called Christians. And he is going after them and he's working at making them pay for what they believe and what he believes was a pollution of the Jewish faith. And Paul, Saul, excuse me, the persecutor on his way to Damascus has this encounter with Christ and it changes everything for him. He goes blind and in this encounter now, that same guy is the one that Ananias is called to go and deal with. Now I want you to put yourself into the shoes or sandals in this case of Ananias. And God says to you, hey, you know the guy that's been persecuting Christians? You know, the one who's been killing some of those Christian people. You know that guy. I want you to go over to this particular house because he's waiting to see you. Most of us would respond, I think, the way Ananias responds, which is, okay, I'm going to put it in my terminology, right? I'm not trying to play loose with Scripture. I just try to make sure that we understand this situation because the way Ananias responds to God is essentially this. Now, God, I know that you've been busy and you don't really know who this guy Saul is. Okay, what Ananias does, and we're going to read here in just a moment, but he comes from a posture of distrust. He knows enough to know that this guy Saul cannot be trusted And surely God would not expect him to go deal with that guy. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, and I would add parenthetically, surely you've heard of him too. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, parenthetically, including me. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So let's look at this and, well, let's jump over. Let's go ahead and get this third part that I want us to look at, verses 26 through 28. This is later. There's some things that have happened in between, and I'll get to those later. But in verse 26, we find, And when he, that is Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Insert the word distrust. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. We'll come back to those passages in a few moments, but let's pause for a moment and let's consider this question. Why is it that trust is so difficult for us as people? Now, clearly, I'm talking in context of inside the church, 
but let's just deal with it for us as people. You don't have to watch much TV as it relates to the local, international news, no matter what kind of news you're watching. You don't have to watch very much to realize that there is incredible distrust that marks the American spirit these days. Probably is true in your business setting, your office context, in your neighborhood even. How many of us did not lock our doors before we came to church today? Distrust seems rampant. Trust seems difficult to grant to people. Why is that so hard for us? I don't want to oversimplify this, but I want to suggest there's two key reasons that we really struggle with trust. The first one is you have a problem. I don't mean you, you. I just mean if I'm dealing with somebody, one of the things that gets in my way of ability to trust them is the fact that I realize they have a problem. In other words, some people are really untrustworthy. We find that here in this passage. It grows right out of the context of this. Here's this guy. He's an apostle. Well, he's not an apostle yet. As a matter of fact, at this point, he's just a persecutor. He's on the outside and he's trying to do damage to the inside. Ananias looks at him essentially like we would look at him and say, that guy's got a problem. I can't trust him. So that's why I asked you earlier, who in the world would not get to hold your dollar on the beach? All of us have people like Saul in our context. We have people that we look at and we go, this person has a problem. I know that they're not trustworthy. I can't trust them, so I'm not going to trust them. But so, so how does that come into and deal with us when we're talking about something like if in doubt trust? So let me just make sure that we're all on the same page here. I am not suggesting that as a church or as individuals in the church, that we be naive and reckless when it comes to trusting people. The truth of the matter is there are some people who are not trustworthy. If you happen to be a parent or a grandparent of young children, you can be sure that there is an element of our church that we don't just arbitrarily trust people. Because when you bring your children or your grandchildren to this church and put them in a Sunday school class or put them in the preschool area, in the nursery area, when you drop off your child here, you can be sure that we take the safety of that child very seriously and we don't just arbitrarily trust everybody who says they want to work with kids. As a matter of fact, we're gonna, if you said to me, I want to work with kids, then I'm going to probably say, why do you want to do that? I know kids. Why would you want to work with kids? No, that, that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. What I mean is we understand that there are those people in our world who think that churches are easy marks when it comes to doing damage to children. And we're careful about that. So we make people go through background checks and through interview process, and we keep track of them, and we have the greatest amount of trust in our system to root out those people who have problems when it comes to being trustworthy. So I don't want you to think that we just kind of wink and a nudge and say, well, come on in, just we trust you. You know, y'all didn't even do that with me. This is a little over a year ago. We were going through almost a year and a half ago now that we were going through the process 
And in the midst of that process, there were some things that the search committee from this church wanted to know about me. And so they started doing some pretty deep dive on who I was. Was I really trustworthy in this position? And just so you know, I did the same thing on you as a church. Because there are such things as man-eating churches out there. And I wasn't interested in being eaten. And I'm glad I'm here. So I'm trying to give a little balance here, all right? When I say infant doubt trust, that doesn't mean that we just arbitrarily trust and throw the door wide open. And even in our own relationships back and forth, we still try to make sure that we do good business. You know where I get that, don't you? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus himself said to his disciples these words, Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And he continues on there, but we read enough there to recognize that even Jesus said to his disciples, Don't be naive problem that we have comes when we try to balance that. Where we, we hold on to that part of us that says, okay, this person has a problem. How do we deal with them? And at the same time, recognize that in our relationships, we have to have grace and mercy. And so we sometimes struggle with this. One of the reasons I emphasize this and have spent this much time on it this morning is because what tends to happen is as somebody violates our trust many times that's the sin of no return as it relates to our relationship with them distrust especially earned distrust is a connection killer for us And so we throw barriers in between our relationships with other people, especially those people who have a problem. Maybe a better way to look at that is what we find with Ananias and with Barnabas in this passage. And that is that we know that person has a problem, and so we begin the process of trying to help grow them to a better way of living. But that only happens when there's connection there. So distrust is a great connection killer. All of our problems are not because that other person has a problem. Sometimes I distrust people because I have a problem, not them. That usually surfaces in one of two ways. I've found in counseling that I've done in just my couple of several decades worth of working with church people. One of the reasons that I may have a problem and you become the I in this. I may have trouble distrusting, I mean, I may have trouble trusting other people because my problem is I've been hurt by people. <laughs> Pain is a great teacher, but it's a brutal taskmaster. You see, the memory of pain often is worse than the pain itself for us. And so in our dealings with other people, if we've been hurt by somebody, it becomes very easy for us to trust nobody. 
It's that point of reference that says, this person hurt me, and so I'm not going to ever let myself get in a position to be hurt by somebody else again. And it kills our connections with people who have nothing to do with those other people who hurt us. We have, we have this at our house. I have, this, I have this dog. I don't have a dog. Teresa has a dog. I've told you before, this dog is, a, is sort of human in a lot of different ways. And this is one of the ways that she's human. Pixie is her name. I told the early service, I feel like I have to turn in my man card every time I just say her name. Pixie is not big at all. She's about tortilla size, if you understand what that means. And uh, so Pixie is, I don't know how old is she, 12 years. Um, Pixie came to us. She was a street dog. Somewhere she had, according to one of the veterinarians that we have taken her to through the years, uh, she was probably part of a puppy mill at some point. And so somewhere in her background, she had a really bad experience or serious experience with some humans. And so she is, uh, she's skittish. Uh, that's probably an understatement, a gross understatement. She's not very big at all, and so she's always afraid of getting stepped on or something, dropping on her. But you know, she's been in our house for a long time now, seven years or, or more, about that, seven years. Uh, and she has it made. I mean, better than a queen. She's got different pillow-type stuff that she can lay on anywhere in the house. She doesn't ever have to lay down on the floor in our house because she's got places that she can... She's, she's got it made, this dog does. If anybody has ever modeled how to treat a dog well, then it would be Teresa. And yet still, because of something in this dog's past, when Teresa calls this dog over, she'll slink over and she'll gradually make her way across the room if she does it even then. But then she'll get just out of arm's length and she'll just lay down on the floor right there to the point that Teresa has to get up and go over there and grab her. And when she grabs her often, Pixie just yelps, not because she's hurt, just because it seems to be the thing to do. Because somewhere in her past, somebody mistreated her. She can't get past that today. And even though she knows that Teresa's not going to mistreat her, she still is skittish around her. Churches are full of people like that. People hurt people. Hurt people really hurt people. And our churches are full of people who have been hurt, and because of that, throw up a wall and say, I'm not going to trust you because somebody else hurt me. And it kills connections. In many cases, it never even allows a connection to be formed. Pain is an effective teacher. It's a brutal taskmaster. And distrust is pain's kissing cousin. They always seem to go together. And so for us as a church, as we seek always to build an atmosphere and a culture here that is conducive to health and to helping people. Remember what we said when we started this series, people matter and we need to treat people like they matter. Well, part of that means that we have to help people overcome this pain that keeps them locked up in very small circles in their lives. Nobody does that better than Jesus Christ does. And his people should be masters 
at helping people. Another reason that we can see that I have the problem and that causes me not to trust people is just out of straight ignorance. I don't know you, and therefore I can't trust you. No, that's not a true statement, even though that's the one we typically want to operate from. Here, let me fix the statement so it becomes true. I don't know you, so I won't trust you. It's not that I can't trust you. It's that I won't trust you. We had this experience church that I pastored, we had, uh, because of a number of different things, we started seeing a great influx of people as they started to come into the church in every context, in our Sunday morning worship services, Sunday night worship services, Wednesday night Bible studies, our youth program, in every aspect of that church, it was just God was doing a work there. And so we had people coming in on any given Sunday, there was a, a big selection of people that I just wouldn't have known who they were. And on one Sunday night, excuse me, a Wednesday night, um, I came out of the church service and noticed that there was a police officer waiting outside. And so I went to see if he was after my son. And, um, <laughs> and he wasn't, but uh, he was there because somebody had their car stolen while we were in church. It was a college student, young lady, and so we were dealing with that. And so there was this group of people gathered around that police officer, and he was asking that college student if there were people that, you know, that she lent her keys to anybody. You know, he was just kind of doing a little bit of investigation, and finally, someone in that crowd volunteered this information. You know, while we were in church, I noticed that there was this one lady sitting by herself on the back row, and uh, she didn't look like she belonged here, and... Uh, she left early before the worship service was over. I wonder if maybe she might have been casing us out and stealing cars. I don't know how you respond to that, but as a pastor, I was standing in that group. <laughs> I thought, what? You see what happens. Oh, by the way, that lady was there because her marriage was falling apart. She had two teenage daughters who were dealing her misery, and she hoped against hope that maybe taking them to church might have been something that would help them find some kind of hope. And instead of that, what she got was an accusation because somebody didn't know her that maybe she was stealing cars. It's, it's insidious the way our distrust leaks into the way we treat people. So ignorance is no excuse. Just because I don't know you doesn't mean I can't trust you. As a matter of fact, this value that we're talking about, this guideline says, I will default to trust you. Now, if you give me reason not to trust you, then we'll deal with that in a different way, but I'm not going to just arbitrarily not trust you. This happens all the time in relationships inside the church. Somebody says something, and the other person then immediately jumps to some kind of conclusion that that was an attack. And they operate like it was an attack. That's defaulting to distrust. And it kills our connections. As I close, let me push you to a couple of things. The way we overcome this, I think, is what we find from Ananias and Barnabas. Because Ananias, this is in verse 17... After he had his say with God, I love that about God, that he allows us to be honest with him. And Ananias was honest with him. I don't trust this guy. And God says, I'm at work here. 
You need to do what I'm telling you to do. By the way, that's the answer to the ignorance thing we're talking about. And Ananias was not ignorant about Saul, but he was ignorant about what God was doing. So God told him what he was doing. And that was enough for Ananias. And so verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias as a leader of the church at this watershed moment where this guy who was previously known as the persecutor from that point through the rest of history would be known as the church's first great missionary. Ananias took God at his word and trusted Saul based on what God had said. Barnabas gives us the same basic thing, verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas and Ananias both stepped into their circles and vouched for this guy who did not deserve to be trusted. And the reason they did is because God said, this is my guy. We need to always, in our relationships with each other, listen to what God is saying. If they're not trustworthy, then invest in them and teach them to be trustworthy. If in doubt, trust. So here's my question for you today. What might God do among a group of people who decided that they would go against all of the push of society around them and default to trust? You can look at the rest of that chapter and you can see what God did with that church. They turned the world upside down because they decided to listen to what God was doing in the lives of people. And there were some key leaders who said, let's trust what God's doing here. So who gets to hold your dollar? Let's pray. And as we close, my encouragement to you is that you find yourself somewhere in this message. It may well be that you're one of those who has been hurt and it's been so long since you've trusted anybody because of that that it's hard to even imagine how life could be different. Living a life marked by distrust is a very lonely life. And it's less than what Jesus offers to you. If you've been hurt like that, nobody can fix that pain like Jesus can. So this is a great time for you to turn that over to him and begin to at least commit to beginning the process of opening the door a little bit and letting some other people into your life. You'll be amazed at how great and fun life can be with people that you can trust. Maybe some of us have real struggles um, because of where we've been. Maybe we're the ones who's not trustworthy. Jesus can forgive that in you and turn that part of your life around but you got to let him do it. So, Father, as we come to this time of invitation, we pray that your spirit would be convicting us and comforting us where necessary and in all of those things that you would be transforming us to be more like Jesus Christ. And so we ask you to take this time and be glorified 
in our lives in it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.